Welcome to episode 317 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Sherry, Anne, Michelle, Megan, and Jennifer. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Sherry, Anne, Michelle, Megan, and Jennifer, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Today, I'm sharing with you a talk by Peggy G. I hope you'll enjoy Peggy's sense of humor as much as I did. Peggy talks about feeling rejected as a child and about getting married early after finding love in the backseat of a Ford. She felt that she had a hole in her gut and tried many things to fill it. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately for her, booze did not do the trick for her. She speaks of, for the first time, being desperate enough to make a sincere prayer to the God I didn't understand. Eventually, she found her second husband, Mr. Wonderful. Of course, he was an alcoholic. I'm sure some of you will identify with each of the things she did to try to get him to stop drinking. And when she felt, I wish he'd just get dead somewhere without hurting anybody else. You may be right there with her when she hit her bottom after an emotional blackout. But of course, that's not the end of her story. It's the beginning of the rest of it. I had tears in my eyes when she described finding compassion for her daddy and making amends to him as he lay in his coffin. It's a great story of trials and tribulations and recovery. Hi, everybody. I'm Peggy. Hi, Peggy. It's because the program of Al-Anon works, and I choose to work the 12 steps in my life on a daily basis that I've been restored to sanity one day at a time. So far, that journey has taken uh, almost 11 years. It'll be 11 years, June 9th. So <clears throat> it's been a long journey at times. It's been a happy dur- journey, and at times it's been a sad one. But through it all, I've had you. A um, couple of things I want to tell you before I get started, because, see, I, a while ago I already asked God to do this thing. So when he kicks in, I'm through. <clears throat> so I do want to say something this morning before... He starts, and that is that I'm grateful to be here. Uh, this is some of the prettiest country we've been in. We've been all over, but it is just lovely up here. So I do thank you for asking us and allowing us to come and share. The other thing is, I am a member in good standing of the Horn Lake group in Horn Lake, Mississippi. I always get through before I tell you that, and I'm sure people all over this country wonder if I still go to Alamo. And I do. I go there regularly. Um, I'm currently treasurer of our group, and uh, on Saturday night, I chair a uh, study from the Survival to Recovery book, and I have someone uh, doing that for me tonight while I can, so I can be here. Um, I'm not really too involved in service work at this point. I was at one time, and I got out of it, and so I decided recently I would uh, get involved again. We've got a convention coming up in the state of Tennessee. <clears throat> and that's the district we're affiliated with. The 98 convention will be held in Memphis, and so I volunteered to be speaker chairman since I knew a lot of speakers all over the country. I figured I had a good in with them, and uh, 
I went to my first meeting the other day for for that uh, convention committee and was there for two hours, and when I left, I knew why, why I got out of service for it. <laughs> Total disorganization drives me nuts. <laughs> Something else I want to say before God starts. <clears throat> um, I've done a lot of observing since I've been here the last 24 hours, and I've, I've met a lot of drunks. <laughs> And in so doing, I know that there's always someone that's connected with that drunk that feels just like I felt at one time. Very lonely. Uh, a lot of other things, but I'll leave it alone for now. But when I'm, and I've known Sterling for some time, but to hear him again last night was just wonderful, and, and I always love to hear Sterling. But, you know, when you see the likes of a Jerry, L walk in here, and we've got a few others along the way here, and you know I always know that that there's a spouse that has felt the loneliness that I felt at one time, and I'm gonna tell you how I cured that because I was so lonely and he was drinking so much and I didn't know where he was and when he'd be home, then when he got home he was so sometimes he was nice and most times he wasn't, and uh, I decided I'd get me a pet that that would be the cure for loneliness for me. Uh, so I went to the pet store, and I talk, told the man that I wanted a pet that would love me every time he saw me walk in the door, that that pet would just be so glad I was home and just, you know, just love me every minute of every day, no matter what I did. He said, I got the very thing for you, Piggy. I said, okay. He said, come back here with me. So we go in the back room. And back there in the dark corner, up on a pedestal, sits this little black furry thing. And I looked at it, and I said, what is that? And he said, that's a woolly booger. And I said, a woolly booger? He said, yeah. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, uh, it would be better if I show you what it is rather than I tell you what it is. Okay, so he goes over to the little woolly booger and he says, Hey, you, get on off that pedestal and woody booger that table down there. Well, that little thing jumped down and it trotted over there and it got a hold of this table and it chewed it all up in a million pieces and spit it out all over everywhere. So, whoa, I'm impressed. He said, Well, would you like to see it again? I said, Yeah. So he says, Hey, you, get on off of that pedestal and well, the booger that pedestal you're on. That little thing jumped down, he grabbed that pedestal, and he just chewed it all up and spit it out in a million pieces all over everywhere. I said, man, I like that. I'm impressed. He said, well, now i got to tell you one thing about it. He said, it only takes commands from a male voice. Eh, not a problem. So I took it home. I set it up on a pedestal in the dining room near the back door, and old Mr. Wonderful walked in just drunker than a skunk. And he turned around, and he looked at that thing over the corner, and he said, what's that? I said, that's a woolly booger. He said, woolly booger my ass. <laughs>
In Mississippi, we call that sweet Al-Anon revenge. Excuse me, pre-Al-Anon revenge. Oh, my goodness. I'm a country girl, and I know I don't look like it today, and I thank God for that. But before this thing's over, the way my toes hurt, and I may have my shoes off, and I hope that that doesn't bother you. But I'm a country girl, born and raised in the, in southeast Arkansas, where they raise rice, soybeans, uh, cotton, and mosquitoes as big as helicopters. Now, you probably don't even know what they are up here. I hope not, but we got them down there, and I promised God a long time ago, if he ever let me get out of there, I wouldn't go back. And I don't very often, especially when those things are in season. I came from a uh, what I would consider, I guess, today to be a normal family. Everybody was normal in it except me. I'm, boy, well, what's his name's counterpart over here? <laughs> I could so much relate to him last night when he was talking about a dysfunctional family. I wanted to call mine one, too. And they, they wouldn't let me get by with it. I have two younger sisters, and uh, my father was a farmer. My mother didn't work, except she did help out on the farm. So I learned how to work at an early age. Uh, you know, we helped out on the farm. We had to. There wasn't any boys. God didn't bless me with any brothers. So it was all up to us five to take care of that farm, and we did. And my father was also a rural mail carrier until he retired some 10, 12 years ago. But we had everything that we needed, not everything we wanted, but we had everything we needed. And they were good to us. Our life revolved around a little Baptist church out in the country. And everything we did revolved around that little church. We were there when the doors opened on Sunday, Sunday night and Wednesday night. And we had one thing that was all, that I always looked forward to during the summer, and that was a singing school where we had an instructor that came from 90 miles away and, and taught us all how to sing uh, by shape notes, to recognize and read shape notes. And uh, so I grew up loving gospel music. And I'm talking about gospel music now. I'm not talking about what they call sacred music. I'm talking about gospel music where, you know, the hand clapping, foot stomping, uh, shouting hallelujah kind of music. That just turns me on. I get revved up like a, you just don't even know how I can get revved up with that. And it was a big part of my life because during one of those singing schools one year, the instructor picked out three people at the end of the school to form a trio to do some special singing. And unbeknownst to him at the time, those three people were me and my two sisters. And so we traveled and sang for several years in that area singing gospel music. So it's just always been a part of my life. And still is a part of my life. Only I don't sing anymore. I just listen. But I'd go, I'd go anywhere to hear a good gospel singing. Just to me, it's wonderful. But that was the good part of my life. The other part of my life was, was my dad. Now he just never did act right. He never did, uh, meet my expectations. Never. And the reason for that was because I had three little girlfriends that lived down this dirt road about a mile, and they had a daddy that I thought was what every daddy in the world should be like. Now, I'm going to describe him to you. He was a big, robust man, 
He never worked a day in his life, I don't guess, but it didn't matter to me because every time I went to see my girlfriends, Mr. John, their dad, would always pick me up and swirl me around and tell me how pretty I was and made me feel like a little princess. And I thought that was wonderful. I just ate it up. But the bad thing about it was I'd go back home and I expected my father to treat me the same. He never did. My father was not affectionate. Didn't matter to me. I thought he ought to be. Especially to me. But he just never did it. When I was very, very young, and I really don't know how old I was, but I'm assuming somewhere around five or six. I was sitting in the living room floor one Saturday night, and the thought just came across my mind that maybe I could just get up in his lap. So I went over to the recliner and started to get up in his lap, and he pushed me away. And for the first time in my life, I felt rejection, but it was not to be the last. I married when I was very young. Well, I'll tell you what, let me, let me back up a little bit. I found love in the back seat of a 57 Ford. <laughs> now y'all all laugh, so I know I'm not alone. <laughs> Somebody else found it there too. <clears throat> but somehow that got all mixed up in my head as being love when in fact it was lust. But when you're raised like I was raised, You've got to cover your sins some kind of way, and the only the kind, only way you can cover that one is to marry. So I married him. About uh, 13 months later, we had a little girl. And <clears throat> all during this, all during the high school years, and and all during uh, this marriage, I began to develop this hole in my gut. It's the only way I've ever been able to describe it, but it was just a giant hole in my gut that. No matter where I was, I wanted to be somewhere else. No matter uh, what I was doing, I wanted to be doing something else. If I was sitting, I wanted to be standing. If, and, you know, I just, I was so confused about what was going on with me at the time that <clears throat> I thought that this marriage was just, you know, it just wasn't for me. I, I just got, left a lot of things out of my childhood and it, that I needed to go back and get. It's the only way I know how to describe it. I just, you know, there was just something I needed to make up. I, I understand today what was going on, but at that time I didn't. And so, <clears throat> no one in my family had ever had a divorce. No one. And um, so I decided, well, I need to get a divorce. I can't just go around and mess around on him. You know, that was against every traditional religious value that I'd ever been taught. So... <clears throat> I provoked him a little. He slapped me around a bit. And I had perfect justification for a divorce. And I got one. Prior to that, though, I had to get rid of that daughter. And I don't tell you this bragging about it or boasting about it, certainly, but it's a very painful part of my story. But but I did it, and, and i got to tell you about it. I had to get rid of that little girl. She was in my way of doing what I wanted to do. The grass was greener on the other side, and I wanted to go to the other side. It was her first day of school, and I took her to, <clears throat> to school in Little Rock that day. <clears throat> she had a black teacher. Now, this was back during the time when um, 
segregation, uh, they'd had the big thing over there with the National Guard, if you remember, in Little Rock, and <clears throat> those people were still pretty sensitive about that, and I really didn't have any feelings one way or the other about it. I truly didn't. But I knew my family did. And when I took my daughter to school that day, she had a black teacher, and I knew I had exactly what I needed. I called up my sister, who could qualify for this program probably as best, as good as I do. And I told her about <clears throat> Angie having a black teacher, and she said, well, you just bring her on down here. We'll put her in school down here, and that's all I needed to hear. So I took her to my sister, and she lived there for the next eight years <clears throat> in that small town where we had grown up. <clears throat> So now that I was rid of the daughter and now that I was rid of the husband, I was off and running trying to fill this hole in my gut. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to tell you this. There's probably a lot of you out there that wondering and thinking, I thought this was an alimony meeting. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that had alcohol done for me what it did for some of you, I would be uh, this morning's speaker and not this afternoon's speaker. <laughs> but it didn't do for me what it did for you. It made me feel out of control, and I never like to be out of control of nothing, especially myself. And when I drank, <clears throat> my tongue got loose at both ends, and I became everything that I hated. And certainly I was not a lady. So I set out on a course to fill this hole in my gut, and I tried everything from booze to men to jobs to cars to clothes to what have you. Never tried any drugs, never did that. There wasn't really too much of it, I don't think, back at the t that time. And I went on a crash course from Little Rock to Dallas back to Little Rock to eventually ended up in Forest City, Arkansas, and I'd lost my job. And I had nowhere to go except back home. I wasn't going to do that because I wasn't welcome. I could go back to Little Rock. I didn't have any friends there. I had done, you know, just used all of them. The only other choice I felt I had was to go to Memphis, Tennessee, which was 40 miles away. I'd never been to Memphis, Tennessee, but one time in my life, and that was to an exhibition football game between the New York, uh, New York Jets and the New England Patriots, I think, when they're right. <clears throat> We've since talked about this. I didn't go there to see my future husband. I went to see Joe Namath. <laughs> <laughs> that ought to get the ego in place for tonight. <laughs> but I've never been there. But I've always been a gambler of sorts with everything except my money. And I decided that I'd just go to Memphis. I didn't have anything to lose, didn't have a job, but I could surely get one I always had. So I went to Memphis with barely enough money in my pocket to pay down on an apartment, turn the utilities home, and I found an apartment. <clears throat> the apartment manager was this little bitty old lady named Shorty. She's about this tall. And she rented me an apartment, and I still don't know why to this day, except that God was in it because I didn't have a job, and they don't rent apartments to Memphis, in Memphis to people that don't have jobs. But I didn't have one. I guess I looked like I had potential, maybe. She rented me this apartment, and I didn't have anything to do every day, so I made a pot of coffee and go sit and talk to Shorty all day down at the office. And I was very attracted to Shorty because she had something I wanted, and that something was peace. I know today it was peace, peace of mind. 
But when she talked of the God of her understanding, her face glowed like a light bulb. And she had been in some sordid places with some pretty shady characters. And when she told me all of that, and she told me what happened to her and how things were with her today, I was really impressed, and I was so attracted to her. And I couldn't get enough of it. I'd go back every day to hear what Shorty had to tell me. One day I left there on a Thursday in September of 75, and I knew that I was going to have to do one of two things. I was going to have to fill this hole in my gut with something, or I was going to have to jump off of that big M bridge over there, because I could not take it anymore. I was miserable. So I went home. It was a townhouse. I went upstairs, went in the bathroom upstairs, closed the door, put the lid down, crossed my arms, and put my head down. And for the very first time in my life, I said a sincere prayer and made a plea to the God that I didn't understand. And I wasn't sure he existed. But I made a plea. I said, God, I don't know what that lady's got talking about Shorty. But whatever it is, I want some of it. And with that, it was like a lightning bolt hit me in the top of my head and went all the way through my body. And it electrifies me today when I just even think about it. It was so one, such a wonderful experience. I didn't know what had happened. I had no idea. But I can tell you one thing. I know the experience Bill Wilson had that we read about. Because I had the same one. And it was wonderful. I couldn't wait to go back and tell Shorty what had happened. She was excited. She didn't tell me what happened. But it was. she thought it was wonderful. Well, she uh, introduced me to some more young people that were my same age. And they thought it was wonderful. And so they all invited me to go to church with them. And so I did. <clears throat> now, that was a new experience. Because I told you I was raised in a Baptist church. And, and it was a very... Um, I mean, these, this Baptist church that I grew up in, you know, it was a very quiet Baptist church. They didn't shout or nothing. And I walked into this Pentecostal church, I'm going to tell you, my eyes came open. Oh, buddy, that was a different experience altogether. But it was, there were some good things about it. You see, God brought me all this way and showed me all these things when he brought me to this church. And there was two things I loved about that church. And number one was their singing. You know that because you know they got good singing. I loved it. They even let me join their choir and I loved that. Learned how to play a tambourine and I could play that sucker and I still can. <laughs> <clears throat> they just don't let me do it now and I need. <laughs> the other thing I liked about their church was the, the God they understood to be a gimme God. Now, boy, I want to tell you, I grew up with this get you God. If you didn't do right, you didn't do what your mama said or your daddy said, God's going to get you. And, you know, I figured he done put my name on the top. I was going to be on the front row of hell because I done done everything they told me not to do. And God was going to get me when I drew my last breath, but he wasn't going to keep me. But their God was one that all you had to do was tell him what you wanted, what you needed, and he gave it to you. And uh, man, I like that. That was wonderful. 
And they taught me how to pray believing that I would receive whatever I had prayed for. That was great. I didn't think God even really cared anything about me. But they did tell me that uh, conditionally God did love me. And I'll tell you about the condition part. I decided after going there for a while, I wanted to be a member of this church. I wanted to join up with these folks. It was something different, something new, and I liked it. And I wanted to be a part of them. So they, there was this girl in the group that I told you about. Her name was Patsy, and I consider her to be my very first spiritual sponsor. She's the one that took me by the hand and led the way. And so I told Patsy I wanted to join this church, and she said, well, you'll have to go talk to the pastor. And uh, so I did. She took me, and we went and talked to him, and he said, well, I'll tell you, young lady, uh, if you want to be a member of this church, you can't wear all that jewelry. You can't wear anything but a watch and a wedding band. I said, well, I'm not married. He said, then you can wear a watch. Well, I thought about that a few minutes, not very long, very few. And you know, by looking at me today, and I'm toned down somewhat today. <laughs> I didn't know how West Virginia might receive all of my flash and trash. But I am pure flash and trash from the very inside out. The gaudier, the better. The flashier, the better. The trashier, the better. It doesn't really matter. But I like it. And it's okay. I can wear it. And I decided that that was just asking too darn much. And I said, thank you, but no thank you. I'm out of here. And so I left. And I never joined the Pentecostal church. I understand today they do look on that... Uh, more likely, and they will let a little bit of flash and trash in there, but I don't think it's a whole lot even yet. But I haven't gone back to see. But I went on my merry way. I still went to church there, and I still maintained friendship with all these people that I had met, this younger group of people. And then they began to pair up and get off, go off and get married. Well, I didn't want to be left by myself, you know, hanging out here. And so I said to Patsy one day, well, you know, <clears throat> I, I believe I'd like to get married. She looked at me and she said, well, God's going to have to clean you up first. <laughs> I didn't think that was very nice, but I figured she's closer to God than I was, and I better listen. So I did. So I went on. Several months later, I brought it up again, and she says, well, I'll tell you what you do. She said, you pray and you ask God to give you a husband. But now when you pray, you pray specifically for what you want in a husband. Well, okay. Now, I did not have a good relationship with my father. I told you that. Didn't have a brother. <clears throat> Done told you about the first husband, what happened to him. Now, what did I know about what I wanted or needed in a husband? Big zero. Nothing. I didn't even know what to ask for. But I was not going to tell Patsy that. Because God knows what she would have come up with. <laughs> so in my desperation, <clears throat> I did what I always do. I said, okay, God, I'll tell you what you do. You know, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to tell God what to do at that time. So I told him, here's what you do, God. You give me the husband that you think is right for me. 
That fella back there snickering. I already knows. He knows what I'm going to say next. I live to regret that prayer. <laughs> oh, boy. I had a job as, <clears throat> as a buyer for this large company in Memphis. And uh, so one of my jobs was to uh, review uh, product lines that salesmen brought through my office or brought into my office. So I went to church, I went to work, and I went home. And that's the only three places I ever was. And so, you know, I didn't have any choice but to look for potential husband candidates in that line of men that came through my office every day. So I'd go to work every day, sit behind that desk. And I wasn't really looking at the merchandise, but I was looking at the potential possible husband benefit that might be in that fellow that brought that stuff in my office. Now, there were some that came in that wasn't half bad. There's others came in. I said, thank you, but no thank you, God. Don't believe that's him. <laughs> and then one day, this fellow walked in my office, and my God, I was almost struck, just starstruck. <clears throat> didn't know who he was, never heard of him, didn't know a thing about him, but he walked in my office, and girls, I got to tell you, I was, I mean, I was hooked. Because, you see, he had these big, broad shoulders, a little bitty skinny waist, and a little teeny butt. <laughs> and better than that, he had this ring on his finger that just sparkled. And, I, you know, I am attracted to sparkles. Especially when they're coming from diamonds. And it was just a gorgeous ring on his finger. And I talked to him, found out we had a lot in common, and I was even more attracted. And I decided he was a pretty good candidate. Didn't know too much else about him but you know that's enough of me so the next week I <clears throat> pretended that I had a business matter to discuss with him and I called him up in his office in Mississippi and they said he's not here I said well where is he they said well he's gone to the coast well what for they said he's on his honeymoon well I'm gonna tell you I you know when you know that you know that you know something and I just knew that guy was the right guy. I really did. And I was devastated when they told me that. Just devastated. It took me a day or two to recover. <laughs> but I went back to the business at hand, and that was reviewing the parade of salesmen that came to my office to see who might be the next best potential husband candidate. And... <clears throat> Nobody else really seemed to fit the bill about it. And then I guess I just forgot about it for a while. I really wasn't too interested anymore. And about a year later, May the 10th, as a matter of fact, 1983, that same man that had been on the coast on his honeymoon called me and asked me to have a drink with him that afternoon. Now, I know you're sitting there wondering, well, what was his wife with him? Well, I didn't know. I didn't ask him. <laughs> didn't really care. But I went to meet him for a drink that afternoon. And, you know, when I got here and started to hearing alcoholics talk and reading my own, my husband's big book, I found out something. When you want something, you got to be willing to go to any length to get it. And I was. I got stone sloppy drunk with him that night. We both got just snockered, and I took him home with me. And he ain't left since. <laughs> and I want you to meet Mr. Wonderful, Larry G.
and it was downhill all the way from there, now. <laughs> Whoa. It didn't take me long to realize this fella didn't know when to stop drinking. He drank all the time. And I got a little bit bothered about that. <clears throat> and I tried to talk to him about it. Even called his brothers and said, Do you think he might be an alcoholic? I had no idea what an alcoholic was. But I'd heard the word. Seemed to fit the bill. So I thought, well, maybe that's what he is. They said, We don't know, honey, but if he is, he's your problem. <laughs> well, that, I didn't think that was nice. I didn't. I had a resentment against them for... <clears throat> Ten years over that. Thank you, Seth. So I tried to talk to this man about his drinking. And talking didn't seem to work. And so I tried a little bit stronger persuasive uh, reasoning with him. That didn't work either. I tried yelling a little bit. That didn't work either. And one thing about him, you know, if this man, I guess if he got drunk today, God permit that he doesn't, but if he got drunk today and went out there on that street in a car, I'll promise you there would be a cop right behind him before he got one block down the street. <laughs> and that cop would pull him over and take him to jail and then call me. I mean, it was a routine. It was a pattern. And, you know, and I... I really wouldn't have minded too much his drinking, but the crap he could get into when he drank bothered me. It really bothered me. Not to say all the money that went down the tube for bail bondsmen, lawyers, court fees, I mean, you name it, and my God, I wish I had the money today that we've spent on all that stuff. I could really be some flash and trash, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I mean, I could do it big time. But that really got my goat, because I've always been a penny pincher, more or less. And that just got my goat when he would just go out and do those kinds of things. Well, he almost lost his car and being the good wife that I, well, I don't even think I was a wife at that time. I think I was just a significant other, as they call them today. But being the good Al-Anon person that I was, candidate, <clears throat> I go down to the bank and get that car transferred over into my name so I can get insurance on it, and then I got him, buddy, right there. So I did that, and I said, oh, I got him now. I go home, and I say, now, this car is in my name, and if you drive it while you drink, you realize what a terrible predicament financially that you will put me into. Oh, yes. So I'll make a deal with you. You cannot drink and drive this car, okay? Oh, I promise you I won't do that. <laughs> and that lasted all of 15 minutes. And so he would, you know, I mean, it was just routine. Every day I knew that he was going to get drunk. I, I mean, I just knew when he came home that night, somewhere along the way, he'd stumbled over a bottle of liquor somewhere. Because he was going to come home that night drinking. So I <clears throat> I just got a little bit tired of that. He wouldn't listen, and he, you know, he just wouldn't listen to me. So 
I decided the best thing to do would just be take that car away from him. Well, he's bigger than I am, or was at that time. I don't think he's bigger than I am now. <laughs> but that time he was bigger, bigger than me. So I called up a friend of mine, and I said, I tell you what, I'm going to come by your house in a minute. I want you to get in your car and follow me. She said, where are we going? I said, it don't matter, but you just follow me. She said, okay. So he came home and did his usual thing. And when he came in the back door, uh, he would always come in with his little Burger King sack in his hand. Because he would have stopped by Burger King and got him a little sandwich. And when he comes home, he sits on the sofa, eats his little sandwich and passes out. Such a wonderful life we had. <laughs> so when he passed out, I got his car keys out of his pocket, and I went and jumped in that old beat-up blue car he'll tell you about tonight. And I go get my girlfriend, and she follows me, and we go way on the other side of Memphis. That's a long way across Memphis. It's a big town. And I put it, I hid it in somebody's yard. I don't even know who they are. And I couldn't get there today if I had to. And I got in the car with her, and she took me back home. Well, the next day, he got up, and he said, where's my car? And I said, it's gone. Well, where's it at? I said, I hid it. He said, you can't do that. I've got this very important appointment today that I've got to make. I've got an appointment, a sales appointment at 11 o'clock or whatever time it was, and I've got to have my car. And he'd keep on talking as he is so masterful at And talk me out of that car. But I'd make him promise every time. I'd make him swear. You will not drink and drive if we go get this car. Oh, I promise. And every time, same old thing over and over again. And I hate to tell you how many times we did that I did this. Thinking this time it'll work. This time it'll be different. And it never did. I knew if he wasn't home by 7 o'clock at night. One of three places had him. The morgue, the jail, or the hospital. The last, the first one never called. The last two did. But seven o'clock was the magic hour at our house. <clears throat> and I couldn't wait to get home. I lived all the two miles from work and I could not wait to get home to sit in my chair and just worry. Where is he? What's he doing? I knew where he was. I knew what he was doing. I may not know the exact location, but it was never any different. And and I would sit there and work up a resentment. And I'd say, God, just please don't let him get killed. Just don't let him kill anybody else. And I'd pray every day. And then when I heard that back door rattle, it was like just anger went all over me. And I would just be so mad that he even lived to get home. So many times I wished he'd just get just get dead somewhere. Without hurting anybody else. That was the only thing. I was afraid that that car was going to hurt somebody else. And I'd already told you it's in my name. So guess who they're going to get? <clears throat> so I didn't want it to affect me. But I just wanted him dead. I wanted him anything. Just out of here. But it, I could not stand, you know, just this constant turmoil. And it finally began to affect me physically to the point that I was vomiting pure blood. And had psoriasis from my elbows to my wrists on both arms and all in my hair. It was the oozy, doozy kind of stuff. You know, you had to wash your hair every day and it was horrible. And the doctor told me that if I didn't do something about the stress in my life, that I would be dead in less than a year. She told me that in August of 1985. 
<clears throat> now, my alcoholic was one of those that, <clears throat> as I told you, always got in the car and always got caught. One night he called me. It was after the magic hour of 7 o'clock. He called me and he said he was in Hernando. And I said, well, what are you doing in Hernando? That's about 25 miles from us. He said, I'm in jail. I said, well, why are you in jail? He said, damn fine, no. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you what's so sad about that. As far as is how I felt. You see, I wanted my husband to be well. I wanted him not to drink. I wanted him to be successful. And I wanted to believe everything he ever told me. And I did. And then when all of the promises were broken, and your heart's broken half in two, and you're so angry because you believed yet another lie. I was never really angry at him because he lied to me. I was angry at me because I believed it. One more time. And when he told me that night that he didn't know why he was in jail, my head told me he's in jail because he's drinking. But my heart said, well, maybe not, Peggy. Maybe maybe they've just got him for some other reason. You better go see about him. And so I got a friend, and we went down there. And when I got down there to get my, he was driving my car, so I'd bail my car out. And when I asked him why they had him in jail, they said, we've got him on a DUI. And my heart just broke. I thought, how can he do this? How can he do this to me? Everything that man did in his drinking, I took it as personal, very personal. It was direct, he directed every bit of it toward me. One of the funnier incidents I'll have to tell you about, wasn't funny at the time, but it is today. He came in one night with his little Burger King sack and Whatever you do, don't you serve my lunch or my dinner tonight. No Burger King sack, I'll tell you that. I'll have a pink-legged resentment, and I'll tell you what that is after a while. But anyway, he came waltzing in with his little Burger King sack, and he walked up by. He had to go by my chair to get to his sofa. And I'd gotten a haircut that day, and it was mighty short, I'm here to tell you. I mean mighty short. And he took one look at me, and he said, well, if I'd have been going to marry a goddamn man, I'd have married one. <laughs> and I started seething. He went on over to the sofa, and he sat down, and he turned around and looked at me again, and he said, besides that, your clothes are ugly. <laughs> he had no one said that. <laughs> Because the next day, the very next day, I didn't go home and worry about him from 5 o'clock to whatever time he got in. I went to Goldsmith's, and that was a nice department store there at the time. And I charged me $500 worth of new clothes. <laughs> Took me five damn years to pay for them, but by God, I got even.
He ain't never said anything else about my clothes. <laughs> and today I buy them when I want to. As many as I want to. Oh, that I can pay for. Let me put that right. <clears throat> In May of 1990, 1986, was Memorial Day weekend. And I had been through some very, very stressful times physically. And I was go- we were going to my mother's for the weekend. That was about two and a half hours away. And he was supposed to be home when I got there at five o'clock. And I'm sure he had all the good intentions to be there. But he didn't show up at five o'clock. And I figured I'd had enough of this. So I got in my car. I remember packing a, a little bag on the side of my bed that afternoon, on a Friday afternoon. The next thing I remember... I walked in my mother's front door at 9.15 that night. Now, where I'd been for four hours and 15 minutes, I have no idea. I could not tell you to this day how I got there other than my car was there, so I know I must have drove it. But as to know which way I went, if I stopped along the way, what happened, I do not know. I have no recollection of that. And I understand today, I've heard people talk about emotional blackouts, and I think that must have been what I had that day, because I have no recollection of it. But it scared me. So the next day, I had a friend that I'd gone to school with, and I went to see Rita, told her what I'd been living with, and for the first time in my life, I was totally honest about where I was and what was going on in my home, because you see, I had been a master at masquerading. I'd masqueraded all of my feelings around my family and around my friends, um, so that they wouldn't know what was going on. And I was totally honest with Rita that day, and she had lived with an alcoholic for 21 years and got a divorce and never found Alan on. But she told me that day, she said, Peggy, I hate to tell you this, but you look like a pile of shit. She was so nice to me. <laughs> this is the end of side one. Stop the recorder now and turn the tape over. These people always just seem to just come right out and tell it like it is, you know. But she did tell me then, and she said, you know, I wish I could offer you some hope, but I can't offer you any. Best thing you do is get your stuff and get out of there. And you know, now here I had been single for 16 years before I ever married Larry. And I had taken care of myself, had a good job, had my own home, my own car. And you know, not one time during the time I lived with his active alcoholism did I ever think that I could leave. Never occurred to me. Never. I promise. Never occurred to me. That's the first thing I tell them now. When I see them sick little things come in there and want to take all that abuse, I say, well, honey, you can leave. But it just didn't occur to me. But when she told me that, it was like, yeah, I can leave. I had an aunt in California I was really fond of. She told me any time I needed a place to go or money to get there to call her. So I knew I had, I knew where I was going. There was a clock on Rita's wall about so big around. I said, I looked up to see what time it was and it was seven o'clock and those boulders just had, had just rolled off of my shoulders. Cause I was free. I knew I was out of there. I was history. I didn't know what that sucker was gonna do, but I knew it wasn't gonna be with me cause I was gone. So I told my family the next day, and they were somewhat surprised to know what I had been living with, because I didn't go around them much when when all this was going on. And uh, 
Maybe they knew more than they let on, but they acted like they didn't know a thing about what was really going on in my life. They didn't act like they really cared what I did. They were supportive in that they said, well, if that's what you've got to do, go for it. So I went back to Memphis that Sunday night. And I wasn't going to tell him because, you know, this man I was living with had a silver tongue in his mouth. I mean, it he could just talk me into or out of anything he wanted to. And I knew if I let him know what I was going to do, he talked me out of it. And I wasn't going to let it happen. Because I knew for me, I had to do this. Because I was the one that was dying. And I had to get out of there. So I got to the door that night. His car wasn't at home. And I didn't find that unusual. But I went to the door and set my bags down to open it. And he opened the door for me. And I looked at him and I said, where's your car? And he said, we've got to talk about that. <laughs> well, you know that old... I mean, you know, there's just certain things that will just hit you in the gut and just, I mean, you know, it just, as they call it, gut punching. He gut punched me that night with that because I knew it was bad. It couldn't be good. But I really didn't want to hear it because God had done for me what I'd never been able to do for myself in that I was able to detach or he had detached me in my little red wagon from that alcoholic. And he told me what had happened. He'll tell you about it tonight. But he told me about what had happened, and I just, and he told me he thought he needed some help. And I said, Larry, the phone book's full of people that can help you, but I can't help you. I went to bed went, and went to sleep and got up the next morning and went to work. And he called me at work and told me that there's these people coming over from a treatment center and they wanted me to come home. And I thought, well, all the more better that is because if he's gone, you know, he ain't going to know when I leave. And I'll have about a week's jump on him. So I went home that afternoon. These people came and they took him away. And they asked me to come over the next day. And they really didn't say what for. But I assumed it was to make financial arrangements. And I figured that's the one last thing I could do to be rid of him. Some And I had the best night's sleep that night I'd had in a long time. Because I knew where he was. He wasn't going to come home drunk. And there wasn't anybody going to call me and tell me. You know, that he was dead or in the hospital or I wouldn't have to get up and make one of those middle of the night runs. So I got up the next day and I started over to this place, which was about 70 miles away. And I don't know what happened, (laughs) but somewhere between home and that treatment center that morning, I got a pink-legged resentment. And when I got there, well, it wasn't a pretty picture. Well, I'm going to tell you what a pink-legged resentment is. I know y'all sitting out there wondering. Pink-legged resentment is when you get a case of the red ass and it's so red it just spills over on your leg. (laughs) Runs down your leg. That's a pretty bad resentment. And I had a pretty bad resentment when I got there that Tuesday morning. or that Yeah, it was on Tuesday morning. I was so angry, and it was boiling out of me like a volcano. And when I got there, I I decided that, no, you ain't doing this no more. You're not going to do me this way again. You're not going to lie to these people. You're not going to lie to me anymore. I'm going to get you right where you need to be got this morning. And I walked in there, and I asked for the administrator of that hospital. And they brought me this fellow dressed in a nice three-piece suit. And I assumed it would be the administrator. Could have been his janitor. I have no idea. Don't care. 
and really don't want to know and hope I never see him again because I sure owe him an amend. I give you that. But I mean, I let that man have it. I told him what he had, what he needed to do with it, and that somebody's going to have to do something, and it was his job to do it and not to let him out of there until he did it. I don't even know what all I told him, but at any rate, I let him have it. And then I asked for the financial man, and I read him the right act. And then I asked for somebody else. I, there was three of them that morning or that day that I got. And they all sit and listen to me patiently. And at 6 o'clock that afternoon, I ended up in a counselor's office downstairs in the basement. <laughs> and that counselor told me two things that day that would save my life. And the first one was, he said, Peggy, if Larry came home from work, or if you came home from work one day, and Larry was sitting in the recliner chair, and he had a gun in his lap, but he didn't have any bullets for it, and he asked you to go to the store and get bullets, would you do that? And I said, certainly not. And he said, well, young lady, I hate to tell you this, but that's, in essence, what you've been doing all this time. Every time that you've ever paid the bills, every time that you've ever picked up the hot checks, every time you've ever bailed him out of jail, every time you've ever done for Larry what Larry should have been doing for himself, you've loaded another bullet in the gun. And that got my attention. And for the first time, I realized the part that I played in the whole sick scenario in our lives. And the hair stood up on the back of my neck. To think that I had been the one who said that I loved him so. But yet had been the one who was help, willing to help him take his own life. It's pretty scary. The other thing Larry told me was I needed to go to al And I said, what's that? He said, well, that I, well, I don't know what he said now. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you because I don't know what he said, but I'll tell you what I heard him say. <laughs> he said, Larry's going to be going to some meetings when he gets out of here, and they've got meetings for you in, in the same place they have meetings for him, and you need to go to make sure he goes. And so on June 9th, 1986, Larry and I both walked into our first meetings together. And I don't know for six months what you ladies and men had to say to me in those Al-Anon rooms because I was too interested in what was going on down the hall or what might be going out the door down the hall. <clears throat> and I was so very preoccupied with everything that he did. You see, I was still focused on him. And you probably told me I was sick, but I didn't hear that either. Because I was too interested in what was going on. And when you said amen after the Lord's Prayer, I didn't stay around and get a chance to know you, nor did I let you know me. Because I had to get down the hall and make sure he was still there. And he hadn't slipped out somewhere and got drunk. And I went on with this for a long time. Probably six or eight months before I ever started hearing what you had to tell me. And that was that I had to put the focus on myself. That his recovery was up to him and his friends in AA. That I could do nothing about it. But that I had to focus on me. And I didn't like that. I didn't like looking at me. But y'all told me I need to get a sponsor. And I said, I asked the lady one night at aftercare. That's at Shoney's in our, where we live. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked this lady, I said, well, 
how do I get a sponsor? And she said, well, honey, I'll tell you. Here's how you do it. You go up to someone that you admire and you ask them if they've worked the fourth and fifth step. And if they tell you no, you move on. Now, UAAs may find that strange, but I'm sure these autonomes probably don't. And there was three gurus in that group that I was going to that I considered to be my home group. And they'd been there longer than God. And so I asked each and every one of them if, if they had worked a fourth and fifth step, and every one of them told me no. That they did not find it necessary to do so. I was devastated, but I moved on. I like that lady told me. Until one night, this little lady walked in there, a little bit short lady, about like that. And she walked in those doors, and she, I, I was desperate by this time, you know, to think that I'd been around here this long and couldn't get a sponsor. And I asked her if she'd worked her fourth and a fifth step, and she said, yes, I have. And I said, good, will you be my sponsor? And she said, I sure will. I still have that sponsor today. Her name's Doris W. And Doris, along with another lady there, helped me through the fourth step and the fifth step and the remainder of my steps. And I kept going to Eleanor's. I went to a meeting every night. And after a while, it got to be less important to me whether he went or whether he stayed. But you became very important to me. And I began to learn things like live and let live. Let go and let God. I love that one. And my life began to change. My focus began to change. Everything around me began to change. And I have to share with you some one of the amends that I had to make. <clears throat> Not that it's more important, but it uh, certainly is very important in my life. My sponsor is a very wise woman, and she told me that I was going to have to go back to this daddy that I hated, and that I was going to have to treat him like I wanted him to treat me all those years. That what I expected of him, I was going to have to give to him. And I didn't like that. I didn't want to do it. And it was very hard for me at first to do that. But I went back to that man and I started little by little just uh, giving him a quick hug. And over a period of years, it got to where he would get up and hug me, or the, at least the last time I saw him, he got up and hugged me without me having to take the initiative. In 90, October of 93, I just bought a new car. And... <clears throat> I had an aunt and uncle that were visiting them, and I just took the day off in the middle of the week, which I never, ever have done. On a Thursday, I took the day off and went down and, and, and visited with my father and mother and my aunt and uncle, and, and Daddy wanted to go for a ride in my new car. And so we did. We rode around for about three hours that afternoon, down roads I had never been down, couldn't find if I had to today. He took me places I'd never been. He thought, you know, he talked to me about a lot of things. Told me I'd spent too much money for that car. <laughs> Still being a daddy, I guess, huh? But we had a great day. I took him back home, and I went back to Memphis to go to work the next day. And two weeks later, on November the 1st, 93, 
Larry came to my office to tell me that my daddy had dropped dead with a massive heart attack. And I'm going to tell you, I've never had anything to <clears throat> shock me as bad as that did. Because you see, my daddy wasn't sick. And I didn't expect it. But I am so grateful that my sponsor made me do, or asked, told me to do, and that I followed instructions for once in my life about those amends. And I knew that I had one last amend to make to him. And so we went home, and I went to the funeral home. To the boys that uh, had the funeral home, I had gone to school with them. And I explained to them that I need some time alone with my dad. And uh, they shut the doors and allowed me to do that. But I told Daddy that day, as he lay there stone cold in the corpse, I said, Daddy, well, I reached down and kissed him first. That was the first and only time I ever kissed him in my life. But I said, Daddy, I am so sorry that I was not able to accept the love that you tried to give me all these years. And I know that you did the very best you could do because you taught me that. He'd been the very best parent he could be. And I want you to know that I'm sorry that I was not able to see that all these years. And I want you to know that I love you. And I appreciate what you did for me. Because my daddy was a very good man. Now I ask you, what greater love can a man give his daughter than to work two jobs so my mom didn't have to work and she could stay home and take care of us? What greater love could a man give his daughter when that's something he never ever had because you see my father's father was an alcoholic a very abusive alcoholic my father spent many a night in a cotton field protecting my grandmother because of the beatings that she would endure from my grandfather he had no stability in his home he had no security in his home. And that's all he was trying to give me. And I couldn't see it. So today, somewhere, in spite of the fact that he never ever said, I'm proud of you, and that's really all I ever wanted to hear out of him. And in spite of the fact that I never heard it from him someday, today I know he's looking down from somewhere saying, go get him, girl, I'm proud of you. And I'm okay with it today. We have a little grandson with us this weekend that's 14 years old that has very special problems. He's an ADHD child, and he's had a hard life. In July of 1993, we went to Evansville, Indiana, Larry and I did, to one of these kinds of things. And when we got back home, my daughter had been trying to reach us all weekend because Joshie had been kidnapped by the people that were supposed to be helping him. And uh, the kids didn't have any money. They knew who had him but didn't know where he was. It became necessary for them to get a lawyer. <clears throat> and the retaining fee for this lawyer was $5,000. And so 
I decided that I would come up with that. It was not something that I was uh, required to do or made feel, made uh, to feel guilty about, but it was something that I wanted to do because I wanted this child to have a chance. And uh, I guess part of it might have been guilt because of what I did to Angie. I never thought about that, but it could have been. I don't know, but, but my response was that was to come up with the money, which I did. Took it to Little Rock, and this attorney gave us absolutely no hope of getting him back because they were scheduled to have the second of three adoption hearings on a Friday. And <clears throat> now they had manipulated the legal system, and that's just a whole other story that I can't even, don't even have time to go into today. But at any rate, we um, he told us to appear in court and that the best thing we could do was to let this judge know that this child did indeed have a family that loved him. But beyond that... We had no hope of taking him back that day, only to let this judge know we were there and that she might possibly postpone this hearing. And I knew if those people got out of that courtroom with him that day, that we would never see him again. I just knew that. It, I knew it in my gut. It's just one of those things that I knew and I wasn't gonna, didn't want to have to take that chance. And then I was reminded by people like you, that I am not God and that I do not know what's best for myself, let alone someone else, my alcoholic, my grandson, or anybody else, and that I would have to pray for God's will in my life and in Joshua's life. And I'm going to tell you, that's a hard pill to swallow. But there again, I knew that your judgment was best and that you were wiser than me in that area so I went to the bathroom and did what I always do when I'm my back's to the wall plus I called all these wonderful new friends that I had now AA and Al-Anon's all over this country and asked them to pray and I prayed but this time rather than tell God what he needed to do I went in and I said your will not mine God I don't know what's best for Joshi. I don't want to lose him. But if you think that's what's best for Joshi, let it be. We went into that courtroom that day and the judge did something that I understand judges don't do. And that is she overturned her own ruling. And we walked out of that courtroom that Friday with Joshua in tow. And when we got back to the hotel where we were staying, we were, he and I were sitting on the sofa and he looked up at me and he's 10 years old now at that time. He looked up at me and he said, Grandma, I didn't think I'd ever see you again. And it don't get no better than that. It just don't. And he was with us last night at the meeting and he heard Sterling say something that impressed him. He heard Sterling say, it's okay to be different. Thank you, Sterling. Because you see, he's, he is different. And people are constantly, including his grandmother, trying to put him in this little box and making what we think he ought to be. And he heard Sterling say, it's okay to be different. He liked that. He may end up with us all someday. We'll save him a seat. We don't know. He so far isn't into drugs, but he certainly seems to have a personality that's consistent with uh, some of us in here. 
<laughs> but those are just some of the benefits that this program has given us, given me. And I'm so grateful for it. I really am. Larry and I have a beautiful home. You know, we, he owed IRS so much money when we got here. I, Lord, I thought we'd never see the end of that. But you know, he managed to get the thing paid off and we got a little bit of money ahead and we've got a beautiful home in Horn Lake, Mississippi. And anytime you're in that area, we're in the phone book and we invite you to come by and have a cup of coffee. You got to put up with this little dog. I gave up the woolly booger and got this little dog. <laughs> And he's a big part of my life, I'm going to tell you. And it's tough to be away from him for a week. And we're going to be gone a week this time. We're taking Joshy on a special trip just for him uh, in conjunction with this weekend. And so, you know, life is just, uh, it's just wonderful. It really is just wonderful. And, and we're just so glad to be a part of it. You know, I've often said and tell my sponsees that, you know, you're very special. We're all very special. We've been hand-picked and hand-chosen in this room. You know, there's a world of people out there that probably need to be here, but they're not here. You are, and I am. And I know that's because I'm special. I've been hand-picked, hand-chosen by the God of my understanding, and that God today is just a, it's a bitsy, teeny-weeny part of that God I grew up with, and just it's a bitsy, teensy weeny part of that God I found in that um, Pentecostal church, and a whole bunch of the loving, accepting God that I found in Alana. And so it's completely, totally changed for me the concept of God I have today, and it's just been a wonderful experience being here. Before I leave you, I want to tell you this. When you take a man's money, all you take is his money. But when you take a man's time, you've taken part of his life. Thank you for part of your life. God bless you. I love you. section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? So Saturday, 1st of February, first Saturday, we have a table that's working out of the Blueprint for Progress four-step inventory book. We're near the end of the book after many years of doing, you know, maybe one question, maybe two questions each meeting. So that's each month. The topic for Saturday's table was justification what did we discover or what do we know about ourselves in the topic of justification, which is a good topic for me, I guess. It's it's a good topic for many of us, I think. Certainly, people around the table would agree with that statement. Rather than going back and thinking about ways in which I justified my actions when my loved one was drinking, because there was lots and lots of justification going on there, I thought about something that happened last week. As you probably have heard from me before, there's some interpersonal friction in my group at work. It's very tempting to blame that friction on the new guy in the group because, hey, it wasn't there before this guy joined the group. But 
as you might know, if you've done your own inventory or as if you've got a sponsor who always asks you to think about what your part in a problem, a situation is, everybody contributes. And I realized that I had had some conversations, particularly with our software development manager, where I think I was justifying, pre-justifying, setting up the situation where maybe we would fire this, this guy. And during the discussion on Saturday morning, I realized that that's not fair and it's not right and it's not true that I need to, you know, look at my part. I need to look at everybody's part and I need to think about what can we do? What can I do? Because, you know, I can't change other people, but I can set up situations that may help us to reduce this friction and and get along better and get, get our work done more effectively because that is the goal at the job. I need to understand what each of the members of my team needs to have in order to be more successful. That's my challenge now, and we'll see where that goes. Alina called with a couple of shares about setting boundaries without controlling. That was episode 44. And Chaos, which was episode 45. I remember doing that episode and definitely having fun with it. Hi, this is Alina. I wanted to share on episode 44, setting boundaries without controlling. I really like this topic a lot too. You know, setting boundaries was kind of a new thing for me when I came into the program. You know, I always wanted to people please and say yes. And I didn't realize that that was causing my frustration when I didn't want to do certain things. I just figured that that was just part of it. So setting boundaries was really difficult and I do feel less anxious when it comes to certain things. And, and, you know, I can be mindful and I know that, that I have choices as far as how to set my boundaries. I can obviously just say no, or I can maybe make a compromise or make, make a suggestion to where it suits me and makes me feel comfortable. And I don't feel, you know, anxious or strapped down to do something that I don't want to do. You know, as far as my qualifier goes, I know that when I started setting, setting boundaries and taking care of myself, that they were the ones that kind of resisted it the most. And I realized that most of that is because of my enabling that I did early on in the relationships and, you know, not knowing any better at that time. And, you know, now that I can take care of myself and look at things, I can do things like detach lovingly and not be upset. You know, nothing's perfect. I still take things personal when words are said to me in a certain way or my qualifier acts out or when I try to express my feelings, they're not validated. It's almost like they talk down to you, like, you know, because they have trouble with their feelings too. And they don't want to accept them sometimes. And 
you know, I come to the realization that a lot of times when there's tension or stuff going on, that it's not because of me, it's because of something going on with them. And that's part of their journey and part of what they need to work on on for themselves. But it is good to be able to communicate openly. And I noticed that both of my qualifiers, I can communicate a lot better with them and they seem to understand me. And, you know, just recently, you know, one of my qualifiers in particular, you know, we had a disagreement and it seemed like we couldn't get out of that frustrated loop and it kept happening repeatedly. And then I think finally it just clicked. Things seem really good now. And, you know, I'm going to embrace that and be grateful for it. You know, I know it may not always be in this space, but you know, it does affect me when it's, when I'm not in a good place and when things aren't good. Anyways, I really like this topic and I really liked the emphasis on, you know, setting boundaries without controlling the controlling part. I guess I never really noticed before, you know, I just have to realize and do it in a loving way and, you know, take care of myself and not take offense. And, you know, I realized that other people set boundaries as well. And I have to respect those as well. Anyways, I enjoyed the topic and thank you for letting me share. I just wanted to share on episode 45 about chaos. This was an interesting topic only because some of the, I read the um, little description of the podcast and, you know, I never really realized being codependent, I could start chaos. And I know that for me, I get really uncomfortable with confrontation. I don't like confrontation. I'd rather just like stuff it all in, go with whatever, anybody else, whether it be anybody at work, my qualifier, anybody really, family member, friends. I just go along with it. You know, sometimes I realize that when chaos occurs or there's disruption or something like that. It makes me feel, feel really uncomfortable. I know that I guess my reaction to the chaos just adds on to it because I didn't really realize that I was causing that. You know, sometimes I'll sit there and start questioning things and get stuck in my head, especially, you know, when my qualifier acts a certain way or acts out and I'm not sure how to handle it. Like I don't want to respond. I don't want to cause you know, any more problems. And I know that I should really stick to the boundaries that I've set as far as, you know, maybe detach at that time, maybe call it a night and say, you know, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Maybe if I sleep on it, I won't feel so bad in the morning. But sometimes I just sit there thinking, okay, you know, I get it stuck in my head. Like maybe things will turn around. Maybe the acting out will stop. Maybe, you know, all these questions go through my head. Like maybe if I mention one little thing like, oh, you know, let's that hurt my feelings, whatever you did. But I noticed that when I do that and go through all these questions and get stuck in my head and don't do the proper things to take care of my own mind, that I guess I do cause chaos. I will second guess or question something out loud or say, Hey, you know, can I ask you? And I know it's not the right time or place to do it now that I realize, but I guess I didn't consider it causing more trouble as far as chaos goes, but being codependent, you know, I 
fear, rejection, and abandonment issues. And I know that's just something I need to deal with and work on. It's really, really hard. I feel like sometimes I do really well with it and then I fall behind and something happens. I know it's not perfect. It's never, I don't know. For me, I feel like it's never going to go away and I just have to work on it every day, one moment at a time, one day at a time, whatever it takes. This topic was really good. It made me see a lot of things in myself and, you know, things that I might be able to change or correct. You know, they say if, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So I know that I should focus on myself a little more and stick by my boundaries. But anyways, thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Alina, for, for continuing to share on our, our back catalog. I've heard that this has inspired at least one person, which means probably a number of people to go back and listen to some of those older episodes again. They're still good. Mike, send in a share on his experience as a man in Al-Anon. Hi, Spencer and crew. This is Mike from Massachusetts. I'm calling in about the topic of men in Al-Anon. Sorry, I missed it before the episode actually went out, but I guess here I am. I've been in Al-Anon now for a little over six years. Uh, at first, I was a little uncomfortable, probably the first two years, maybe a little more, because half the time I was the only, sometimes I was the only man, or there's only two of us in a room full of 20 some odd women, or at least. And sometimes, I was, even though it's in my late 40s, a lot of times I was 15, 20 years younger than the average, I would say. So I kind of really didn't feel like it fit in, even though things they were saying were very similar to what I was, what I was thinking. And that made it a little more difficult. Plus the fact that I grew up with it, I didn't marry into it. Most of these women had married into it. But once I found another meeting with more men, I felt a little more comfortable. But one thing I did notice though was when men were present, they generally weren't as open or as vulnerable as the the women. They didn't talk about emotions. They basically just stated the facts, which didn't really help me open up and get the recovery that I needed. But then the gift of crisis, dropped on me in late 2016 and especially early 2017, shattered the wall of ice I put up around my heart at the age of 89 or so. So for about 40 years of my life, I didn't really let myself feel my emotions. It was too dangerous in my alcoholic household. But after that crisis, I had to open up and share. I couldn't handle it on my own. And that was scarier than any of the bouncing or bodyguarding jobs I've ever had. But I needed to get it out. And after a few meetings like that, opening up, I had some men come up and thank me for being so open and sharing so vulnerably. And they said that they hoped they'd be able to do this, do so the same. Now, some did, some didn't, but it kind of did seem to start a trend. I'd notice in the meetings I used to go to anyway, men are more open. I don't know if that's truly the case or if it's just like when you buy a new car, you see everybody else has the same car or how many other cars are like that on the road. But I think it's great to see. So since then, I'm still more sharing more emotions because that's what I need. But it is hard to overcome the lifetime of programming that we men have, not to show our emotions other than anger. At least that was what my programming was. But I overcame it because I had to out of necessity. But sometimes even though, even now, after a couple of years of being open like this, I still worry about what the other men in the meeting think and sometimes even what the women think after I've shared something openly because we don't generally get the same support. It's like I say, so it makes, leaves me to wonder if the stinking thinking gets going. 
and I feel the shame of being open and sharing these deep, vulnerable parts that I'm not supposed to from what I'm told, what I was told growing up. Thank you, Mike. And also, Tanya sent in a share on the same topic. Hi, Spencer. This is Tanya. I'm listening to the podcast about men in Al-Anon, and I put it on pause because I wanted to share right away one of the many benefits that I've received from this program is the wonderful relationships that I have developed with so many of the members, including men. It's really been wonderful for me because my dad died when I was 10 years old, and I never really had another father figure. And he was also pretty not available before he passed away. In this program, I have met so many amazingly warm, available, really father figures, as you can hear in my voice, incredibly touching. And they have been such an amazing source of courage, strength, and hope for me. It's also allowed me to make friendships with men that I've never really had before, where I can be intimate intellectually, more importantly, spiritually and emotionally. And honestly, I haven't had that in a very long time, probably since high school. <laughs> so I am very grateful for the men in Al-Anon as well as the women and uh, to you and this podcast. Thank you. Thank you both. Still working on an episode about dual program members. If you're in Al-Anon and another program, love to hear from you about how your programs interact, how they support each other, how they're different. And what challenges do you have as an Al-Anon member in keeping the focus on the Al-Anon program when you're sharing in a meeting? Please call and leave a voicemail, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join from your computer. Or if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. Or as more and more of you are doing, and this is a wonderful way to contribute, you can record your share, your questions, your feedback using the voice memo application on your phone or whatever it's called on your particular phone, and then email that file to me. We would love to hear from you. Please share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Our website is therecovery.show, where you can find all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, which are at therecovery.show slash episode number. So this one, therecovery.show slash 317. There's links to the books we read from or other things that we mention in the podcast. Videos for the music we choose, which there isn't any this week. Also, therecovery.show slash contact has all that information that I just set up above about how to get in touch with us. Feedback from you, Amanda, 
alerted us to an online marathon of recovery stories. Hi, Spencer. Thank you for everything that you do for this podcast. I really appreciate it. I wanted to call and let you and listeners know of um, kind of a special Valentine's Day call in or online meeting for everyone, but also maybe especially people in places where meetings don't happen all the time. It's a call happening sponsored by Al-Anon and Codependence Anonymous, and it's called well, I don't know if it's officially sponsored, but it's it's called the Marathon of Recovery Stories, February 14th and 15th, uh, which is Friday and Saturday, Eastern Standard Time, 8 a.m. to midnight. Every hour on the hour, a new speaker with a story of successful recovery from codependency. From the U.S., you can dial in at 425 436 Six two zero zero, with the access code two eight zero one nine four pound. And if you are international, you can join the online meeting at the website join dot dot com slash Megan BB Solution Nine, which is spelled M E G A N B B. Solution S O L U T I O N nine, um, and you can qu- uh, contact or email her at Megan dot solution at gmail dot com, and there's also an international dial in number where you can like call from the international, but it's a longer thing. So I'll, if you're interested in that, you can check out the website or email her, or check out the flyer. Yeah, I just wanted to share because it seems like a really good resource just to call in really any time between 8 a.m. and midnight Eastern Standard Time those that weekend and just kind of listen to some recovery and some experience, strength, and hope around Valentine's Day from Al-Anon and CODA. So, yeah, thanks so much, Spencer, for putting this together and connecting so many people around the world. Thanks. And thank you for that, Amanda. Amanda also sent... Um, a picture of a flyer that I will post on the website at therecovery.show slash 317. And you should note that this is happening February 14th to 15th, 2020. So if you're listening to the podcast later in the year or in another year, well, it's already happened. Amanda also had a question. She says, I heard in a podcast a while ago that someone had made a flyer for your podcast. If you have it, could you post it or send it to me? I responded to her with this information, what I have is a page of what I call business cards that you can print out. You can buy business card stock at, you know, Staples or Office Max or something and then print them out and then hand them out to people to say, Hey, you know, I listened to this thing and you might find value in it. It's easy. It makes it an easy way for them to remember it. Anyway, you can find them on our website at the recovery dot show slash the recovery show cards. And I might make a shorter version of that. So <laughs> cause that's kind of long. I will put that link in the notes at the recovery dot show slash three seventeen. Also on every page on the website, at least if you're uh, visiting the website on a computer on the right side of the page, underneath the heading, our stuff, there's a link 
titled Recovery Show Cards. If you're on a tablet or a phone, that same list of our stuff and link will be near the bottom of the screen if you if you scroll most of the way down. And there's information on that page about exactly what business card template works for me, etc. Angelica writes, Hello, Spencer. I listened to episode 253 this morning about denial, and it really resonated with me. I have just recently come to understand that I have been living in denial of various parts of myself for 30 years of life. I've been indirectly affected by alcoholism, abuse, and various forms of dysfunction for as long as I can remember. My version of living in denial as a nearly constant state has manifested itself as me working hard to keep my life organized and compartmentalized into what I've always believed to be acceptable categories. This includes striving to be a good worker or good person who doesn't experience anger, fear, uncertainty, failure, or even a physical sensation as natural as sexual feelings during my workday or daily life. I only feel successful when I am smiling, happy, totally focused on the task at hand, even at the expense of ignoring my own physical needs, performing to the utmost highest standards, always defined by a boss or external figure. And if I am a basically vanilla person, kind, not controversial, and asexual, which is always translated to me as non-threatening, then I've had a good day. It's hard to summarize, but basically I'm realizing that part of my recovery is learning to integrate my authentic selves, the many parts of myself that make me who I am, into one holistic self. Yes, it's important to behave appropriately at work and in various contexts, but I no longer believe that my path to serenity is pretending to be someone I'm not, or to ignore my body and its needs, feelings, and sensations. Part of my path out of denial and into recovery is allowing myself to be a full person, flawed and all, and recognize that I am okay. I don't have to be the hurt little girl anymore who tries to get approval from any adult that will give it to her to prove that I am enough. I'm an adult woman who is capable and complex and able to reach my potential every day by just showing up and working hard, something I know how to do. Thanks for letting me share. I really appreciate this podcast. I treat it like one of my meetings. I appreciate you, Spencer, and all the guests you have on. What an incredible bunch of people. In gratitude, Angelica. Thank you so much, Angelica, for sharing your journey towards wholeness. It's a great share. Thank you. Deborah sent a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Deborah from Florida. I just listened to episode 315 on belonging. Thank you for reminding me of the inclusive, diverse, and incredibly welcoming place that Al-Anon is. And at the end, you read my letter regarding my tsunami about my son's relapse. Writing that letter to you and Eric truly helped me ease some of the pain I'm experiencing. The journey continues. I I believe he's in a detox now, but I, I really don't know. I've been hands-off, so I'm not sure. But hearing you read that letter... It truly helped me hear more clearly just how much I had relapsed as well. I'm doing the right things. I'm going to meetings, reading, doing service work, detaching with love. However, I'm not really letting go. Something about you reading my letter just made that hit me. I'm not trusting my higher power. If I am completely honest, I have been thinking that if I just work my program hard enough, that will force the miracle of sobriety to come to my son. Crazy thinking. It's amazing how how much I can do of that. So back to step one I go. I am powerless over alcohol. Nothing I am doing ensures my son's recovery. I must keep the focus on me. My higher power is with me. 
and I have to trust that my son's higher power is with him through it all. Thank you again for all you do to help each of us uh, live this program to the best of our ability. So grateful to have you on my phone 24-7. Thanks, Spencer. And I just, wow, just thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I, we truly don't know the power of our own words and our own voices sometimes. Thank you. Julie sent a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. My name is Julie, and I've been listening to your show for, I don't know, a little over a year, I guess, and finally started actually attending meetings and went to my first meeting in October because of your show. So I want to say thank you first and foremost. Um, I heard you on one of your podcasts or one of your recent shows just talking about uh, different ideas and topics. And one that I think would be helpful would be one that people kind of share about different meeting structures that they've been to and different things that maybe they like or they dislike or, you know, kind of get some feedback from around the country or around the globe or whatever, because I am in a rural community and it's not, there aren't a whole lot of meetings. So there aren't a whole lot of varieties of structure. And we often at our business meeting talk about what we might want to do differently. And I feel like there aren't a whole lot of different things that people have, have experienced but just from some of the conversations from your show, it sounds like there are some different different ways to do it, I guess. Also, for me, when I wanted to go to my first meeting, but I was scared, I really struggled with the fact that I couldn't visualize it. So even talking about, you know, how the chairs are set up or how it starts or anything like that, I think, and having something that's really focused on that, I think might help somebody who's scared to go to a meeting actually gain the courage to go that first time if they can kind of go through a visual first or have an idea of what to expect a little bit more. But that's it. I just, that idea just kind of popped into my head. So I decided to stop and give you a call. I just want to say thank you again. I really, really appreciate your show. It is the reason that I found Alan on. And I'm so grateful that I did. I'm, I've only been involved for a short time, but I'm already seeing major changes in my life. I'm really happy with that and really happy with how I'm changing. And I feel like I have you to thank. So thanks again. Julie, I'm, I'm so glad that I, we were able to help you find your way to a meeting. And that's a, a wonderful topic idea. Again, um, it's a challenge to, to you who are listening. What is your meeting like? How is it organized? What happens at the beginning of the meeting? What happens next? What happens in the middle of the meeting? Are there things that always happen? Are there things that happen sometimes? How is sharing structured? Do you just have popcorn people speak up when they are moved? You have a leader who calls on people, raising their hands maybe. Does it go around the room? Is there something else? I've experienced, I think, all of those structures. Please call or write and share your experience to help people like Julie who, you know, aren't sure what happens in a meeting, aren't sure what to expect when they walk into a meeting and are like, is this normal? Is this usual? Is this the only way? Because 
those of us who've been around for a little while and have experienced different meetings know it's not the only way. And if somebody's looking to make a change in their meeting, some ideas of ways in which other meetings work could be very helpful. Obviously, I can't talk about all the different meeting formats because I haven't experienced them. So please call or write. Thanks. Ashley sent thanks. Hi, Spencer. This is Ashley. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your show. I love it and listen to it every day, and it has helped me so much in my recovery. Today is the anniversary, uh, the first anniversary of sobriety of one of my family members, and I'm really happy, and I'm grateful that their journey actually led me to recognize the impact of the family disease of alcoholism on my life because it's so much a part of our family. And uh, eventually I started going to Al-Anon and ACA and working the steps. And your show has been part of that. So thank you. Bye. Katie responded to episode 275, which was with Kate C. Hi, Spencer and Recovery Show team. I am new to Al-Anon and have been listening to your podcast for a couple months. Your podcast has been so beneficial to me. I live in a small town with two meetings a week that I'm able to attend. Various things have kept me from attending regularly so far. Your podcast reminds me that Al-Anon holds answers in serenity and that I can choose to start over and not view my missed meetings as a failure or myself as a lost cause. Episode 275 with Kate C. was particularly resonant with my experiences and a good reminder that there are a lot of people in the program I can relate to. She grew up with an alcoholic, over-the-top emotional mom and a distant, angry father. My parents were similar, though my mom was a food addict and codependent, and my dad was a dry drunk. Like Kate, I had a brother three years younger, who I viewed as my responsibility. I thought he needed me to parent him because our parents weren't doing the job well enough. When he came out about the childhood abuse he suffered, and as he struggled with mental health disorders and addiction, I struggled with a lot of guilt that I hadn't been able to protect him or help him. In college, I met my now husband, and just like Kate, I had the hardest time with trust. I didn't trust myself to give him the love he deserved, and I was paranoid that he wasn't what he seemed. My isms were, and are still, so strong that I damage our relationship with my emotional instability and deep-seated insecurity. Al-Anon has helped me get in touch with my higher power, something I only had the vaguest linking of before. It lets me know that things will be okay no matter what happens. That's all I can do is the next right thing, which is often admitting I don't know what to do and praying about it. Calming down and reflecting rather than reacting and regretting. I had a breakthrough in the bath praying on my brother. What should I do, I asked. Just love him, a voice inside me said, and I cried, knowing it was the right answer and that there was nothing more powerful I could offer him. I felt relief that it wasn't my responsibility to make sure he turns out okay. With my husband, I use Al-Anon tools as much as I can, especially how important is it, and halt to stop myself from fighting about unimportant things or taking things personally. I'm looking forward to the rest of my lifelong journey with recovery, and I'm so grateful to have your voice and your experience to draw strength from. Thank you again for all you do. Katie from Oregon. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you for writing. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for touching listeners 
with your experience. I love this phrase, calming down and reflecting rather than reacting and regretting. That's so good. Thanks. Kathy writes about a couple of recent episodes. Thanks for always being there with the podcast, Spencer. The work you do is so important. In 315, once Scott Peck said in a presentation that if you could not afford psychotherapy but knew that you needed it, you could go to Al-Anon and get what you needed. He said the only requirement for membership is alcoholism in a family member or friend, and everyone has one, even if you don't know it, huh? 316, I'm always grateful for the attendance of men at Al-Anon. My husband did not want to go because, quotes, they didn't tell me how to fix our son. Maybe men tend to get the message that they are fixers and not fixies. There was a man who attended our meeting who lost his son to overdose, and he was always so loving and generous when speaking of his son. His sharing meant a lot to me. I have sponsored a man, but we talked at length about the gender situation before we began. The only difference I had with him was that I asked him to do his fifth step with another man, which seemed to work out very well. I also have a tenth step partner, kind of like we sponsor each other who is a man, and we have worked together for almost 19 years. When he makes his wife angry, she tells him that he has to talk to Kathy about it. (laughs) Kathy from Newark, Delaware. That's funny. (laughs) That's great. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks, Kathy, for making me laugh. for listening and please keep coming back whatever your problems there are those among us who have had them too if we did not talk about a problem you are facing today feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode may understanding love and peace growing you one day at a time